1. If one of the chairback Bibles might be useful to you, you can find one nearby you and you'll find tonight's text on page 1011. We left off last week at the end of verse 18, and so we'll take it this evening all the way through the end of chapter 1. So verse 19 through 27, uh, let me read it and, and then pray for God's blessing and we'll continue. So here now as God speaks to you, His covenant and perfect word. Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Our Father, we do thank you that your word is powerful, that it is living and active, that you have breathed it out for our correction, for our reproof, for our exhortation, for training in righteousness, that we might be fully equipped and fully complete in Jesus Christ as we stand before you. And so let your word do its work in our hearts this night as we come to it once again to receive its food and to receive its life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have enjoyed throughout the years for a variety of different reasons reading stories of pastors and ministers that tended to be unusually prolific, uh, clearly worked very hard for the Lord. And one man that's often stuck out in my mind related to this is a 17th century pastor named Richard Baxter. He's best known for a couple of books that he has written that remain in print, one of which is called The Reformed Pastor, another is called Saints Everlasting Rest. He not only was a vibrant preacher, an earnest evangelist, uh, a faithful shepherd and a diligent catechist. He was also a man who published no small number of words. His wife supposedly once said on an occasion, I don't think Richard has ever had an unwritten thought. Such was his desire to write. And one of his lesser known works is one that numbers some 1,250,000 words. as a book that Tim Keller has called The Greatest Biblical Counseling Manual Ever Produced. Or someone like J.I. Packer, who was a Richard Baxter scholar, said in his introduction to this work that outside of the inspired scripture, it's the most profitable Christian volume ever published. It's a book that basically looks at the Christian life and seeks to apply God's word to all of these various cases, what Baxter would call cases of conscience. And it's a book that's simply titled A Christian Directory. The heart work that belongs to life in Jesus Christ. And although James's letter, of course, is much shorter, 
something like 2,300 words long. It's right to understand this letter that's been before us for a number of weeks now as we've read through it and are preaching through it. It's very much a Christian's directory as what James is doing is giving us the truth related to the heart work of what it means to follow Jesus Christ fully. And fully being formed into Christ's image is the point where he began. If you glance back to where we started a few weeks ago, verse 4, Uh, What he tells us is that these trials that often belong to the Christian life must bring forth steadfastness, and we're to let steadfastness have its full effect that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it's almost like a masthead verse over what comes in the following paragraphs. And so students, as we said a couple of weeks ago, when James is speaking here about being perfect and complete, he's of course not talking about perfection in terms of moral blamelessness. It's the idea of being whole. It's the idea of being fully mature and conformed unto the image of of Jesus Christ. And so what James is also telling us then is one of God's favorite chisels for shaping his children after his son's image are trials. Use trials to just chip away at those parts of your life that need to be laid aside if you're to strive after Christ-likeness. But... That's not the only tool God uses to grow his people in Christ-likeness. It's not just trials. What we find in our text tonight, it's also God's truth. That trials and truth are like tools in a sculptor's hand that God is using to shape us after the image of Jesus Christ. And so, kids, some of you, I know, certainly many of you, of course, have been here for a number of hours today. This has been a Sunday, no doubt, that's been full of God's word, hasn't it? Perhaps you went through Sunday school, you sat through the morning worship service, maybe discussed the sermon over lunch, perhaps read your Bible, talked some catechism questions with your parents in the the afternoon, and now you're back here in the evening. But what James is going to have you know tonight is that, of course, your involvement and devotion to God's Word can't end on Sunday evening. I wonder what your plans would be for tomorrow on a Monday, as the week really feels like it begins what interaction you'll have with God's Word. What about Tuesday? What about Wednesday? What kind of meditation? What kinds of prayer? What kinds of careful examination of Scripture might mark your life? And James is going to help us understand tonight the place of God's Word in the life of God's people. Uh, The simple theme that I want to bring forth from these verses are the qualities of a Word-shaped life. So James after, in this passage, a life that's shaped around the power in the truth of God's word. And so we'll see, first of all, he's calling us to go about the business of receiving God's word. And then secondly, in the middle portion where we'll spend the least amount of time, it's about doing God's word, and thirdly, about obeying God's word. So these are the qualities that belongs to a word-shaped life, receiving it, doing it, and obeying it. And that James is picking up on the theme of God's word is clear enough from where we left off last week. Look again at verse 18. And James tells us, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That language, of course, of being brought forth, this language of regeneration, that's God making us new, making us alive according to his word of truth. And as James's letter continues to go along, you'll notice this. A lot of times what seems to be linking various sentences and paragraphs is we left off at a particular place in a sentence, like here in verse 18, thinking about the word of truth. Well, now he's going to pick up 
Well, exactly. Again, the place of that word of truth in the life of God's people. And first, he begins by instructing us what it means to go about receiving God's word. So look again at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It's this threefold volley, isn't it, of spirituality that couldn't be more perfect to any age, therefore more perfect to our Tweet first and think later age that is life in 21st century America. How many people do you know that prize the graces and virtues of rarely speaking but often listening? Not speaking slowly, children, as sometimes a grandfather can do. The words just seem to be drawn out. Well, no, it's of course, don't rush and race to talk. Be much more diligent to race, even sprint into listening to other people, being slow to anger. Think of all the ways in which ordinary life can seemingly flip a switch of anger. You know, you're driving to the office or, or driving home from the office and you hit yet another red light. Or perhaps along the way, children, your sibling takes that toy yet again that you were wanting to play with. Or what so often happens in my life on Saturdays as I watch my children play in soccer games, sometimes coaching from the coach's sideline or the parent's sideline, I feel myself, the older I get, just retreating to the corner flag. The reason why is because all it seems that the parents want to do is just ignite their anger at the wrong decision the referee made. And it genuinely is a difficult thing to endure along the way. I wonder what trips there are in your heart and soul to ignite seemingly out of nothing this rage. And James's point is not just to be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to hear. It's got a reason. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Man's wrath doesn't bring forth God's righteousness. It's that simple, isn't it? It's not a revolutionary statement. Man's wrath does not bring forth God's righteousness. But how often maybe we're surprised in our homes, in our lives, in our churches, then when righteousness isn't growing? Maybe it's because anger is a little bit more present. Maybe it's a little bit more a quick-tempered congregation. That goes back in James's mind to an inability to be slow to speak and, and quick to listen. And so what's the answer for people that are struggling with these kind of things? Well, notice verse 21. Therefore... Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. So it's necessary here as he speaks about this implanted word that he's using language that would have belonged to Jesus Christ himself, thinking about the word as a seed. And so the agricultural metaphor is most useful, isn't it? That when you go about the work of tilling the soil, preparing it for the seed, a lot of times what you're having to do is take out those impediments to a good harvest. Oftentimes in the Christian life, what's necessary to receiving God's word, it begins with pulling up those weeds that he speaks here directly about filthiness, rampant wickedness, that you might receive the word, notice, with meekness. You know, if you're anything like me, you might get to this part of verse 21 and maybe somewhat surprised that meekness is the grace that James chooses to emphasize. Maybe you think that he would say something like, receive the implanted word with faith. 
Receive the implanted word with repentance. Receive the implanted word with joy. Or receive the implanted word with reverence. But James emphasizes meekness here. And students, I would imagine that in your school and perhaps your circle of friends, being meek might not be a life ambition. But it is a life ambition of godly people. The apostles often speak about meekness as belonging to this true nature of, of Christian grace. Lord Jesus Christ, you might remember in his Beatitudes, says it's the meek that's going to inherit the earth. So important is meekness that when Paul's trying to get the Corinthians, this crazy congregation, trying to get the Corinthians back on track, he says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Jesus Christ. So meekness and gentleness are synonyms that are often quite close in the original classical meaning. It means something meekness does. It's strength under control. It's exuding power without being harsh. It's not weakness, but it's understood to be this nature that belongs to a grace-filled life in, in Jesus Christ. And meekness is, you might say, the fertilizer that prepares our soul, prepares our heart to receive God's implanted word. And so you might stop at this point in, in verse 21 and think, you know, if someone was to come along and do a soil test, you know, like people sometimes do out in the agricultural world, but they do a soil test of, of your heart, what kinds of things might they discover? What kinds of elements and properties might be present in it? Receive God's word with meekness. Notice the power. Or we're so zealous to receive God's truth. The end of verse 21 tells us it is able to save your souls. It's no simple, ordinary word that is read. It's no simple, ordinary word that is preached. It's powerful and able to save your soul. A word-shaped life begins with receiving God's word. And notice, now in verse 22 through 25, it continues into doing God's word. And verse 22 tells us, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So in the ancient world of James' time, there were people who could be hired out as listeners. And these people would follow around lecturers, follow around teachers, follow around various rhetoricians, and they were just there to listen. But they weren't there to do anything with what they heard. And James seems to have that idea in mind here with Christians. That when it comes to hearing God's word, when it comes to listening to God's word, it's not only about hearing, but it's about heeding. It's not only about receiving, but responding. Otherwise, you'll see what he says at the end of verse 22, we deceive ourselves. Someone who hears the word but doesn't heed it is self-deceived in their spirituality, James says. And like a good preacher, he goes on to illustrate it. Notice verse 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Kids, I wonder if perhaps as you were getting ready for church this day, you looked into a mirror. Now, why did you look into the mirror? Surely to figure out at some level what you looked like. What the clothes looked like. Your hair looked like. The beard looks like. Whatever it might be. And James's point here is that just as you look into a mirror to see who you are, God's word functions like a mirror to his people to show who they are. Truly, in their soul and in their spirit. And to walk away from hearing the word without heeding the word would be just as silly as someone walking away from a mirror and then forgetting altogether what they look like. 
such as the nature of, of doing God's word. Much better is, notice verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the way James speaks about God's word, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ said, anyone who hears my word and keeps it will receive a blessing. We saw this over and over, didn't we, in previous studies in the evening through Revelation where he gives this divine benediction right at the beginning of that prophecy. Anyone who hears this word and keeps it will be blessed. And I suppose you know, as I do, how easy it is to hear God's word and have it seemingly just disappear from your heart and your desire to to do anything. You know, you hear the word on a Sunday morning perhaps or even in the evening and uh, the benediction comes and you, you turn to your family member seated next to you and says, well, well what's for lunch? Oh, where, where are we going now? Or you perhaps get home and you quickly say, well, what do I need to do to be ready for school or for work tomorrow? As quickly as you hear it, it's just in one ear and, and out the other. Uh, much better is the person that looks for the blessing that's found in God's word, a blessing that is found not just in hearing, but in doing God's word. These are qualities, aren't they, of a word-shaped life. Receiving God's word, doing God's word, down verse 26 and 27. It's about obeying God's word. Because it's almost as though James, as he speaks about doing God's word, he expects his hearers, he expects those who will hear this letter read in their hearing or perhaps read it along the way themselves, they'll wonder, well, what exactly might be some examples of doing God's word. Well, he gives us three. Three simple ways that we might understand what he calls pure religion. Don't get tripped up, perhaps, in your own tradition and background with the word religion. It's just simply a way of speaking about true devotion. And the first mark of pure religion, he says, is keeping your tongue under control. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The students, if you've ever perhaps had a chance to ride on a horse before, you might appreciate this image that he's using here of a bridle. You know, a bridle is what holds the bit in the horse's mouth, and it's that which controls where the horse is going and how you steer and direct him along the way. And then, of course, without that kind of bridling power, what he says is a person's religion is nothing more than just vain idolatry. That wordy religion, this kind of verbose devotion, it's not normal for Christians to be that way, is what James is saying, which clearly is linked back to what he just said. They're slow to speak, and they're quick to listen. I wonder how many of our homes and how about even this church might be for the better if there was a bridle on our tongues. Sometimes we would say, well, yeah, I could say that, but... It's not going to give a blessing to all who hears it, so I might as well not even mention it. The second thing he mentions, you'll notice in verse 27, it's not just about controlling the tongue, it's about showing compassion to the needy religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You might know that in the ancient world there were no government programs of welfare and social security. If you were a child and lost your parents, or especially, of course, if you were a wife and lost your husband, it was almost as though culturally you received a death sentence. Who's going to provide for you? In the ancient world, it was very much the church that would provide for orphans 
and widows, the needy in their midst, visiting them in their affliction. I wonder what you have done this year as we come rapidly to its conclusion, what you have done to visit orphans, widows, the needy in this church, knowing that such is obedience to God's word, such is proof of doing God's word that you have received. It's not just about controlling the tongue, is it? Or only having compassion on the needy. You'll see it's about keeping oneself from worldliness. The end of verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. You think about a garment that's stained with mud and dirt. The Christian life is meant to be kept free. Clean is the idea from worldliness. So important is this, you might even just glance over a page in your Bible to chapter 4 where he talks about the, the danger of worldliness where he says to be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. It's, it's that important and vital that you recognize the controlling and tempting power that belongs to worldliness. These are qualities of a word-shaped life. You're receiving it. You're doing it. And you're obeying it. Now, a few months ago, I think it was in a morning service, I told you this story that Thomas Goodwin, one of the great theologians of the 17th century, said about visiting a church that was pastored by one Mr. Rogers. He showed up at the church that morning, and Mr. Rogers was evidently concerned about his congregation's lack of attention and even affection uh, for God's word. And so what he began to do in the course of the sermon, uh, Mr. Rogers, he, he picked his Bible up off the pulpit cushion that would have marked pulpits at that time. He picked it up and he began to personate God. And he said, I've given you my Bible. I've given you my word. But it lays in dust and cobwebs in your home. I've given you my Bible, I've given you my word, but you have no desire to listen. You have no desire to heed, no desire to hear. And so, as the story goes, according to Goodwin, Mr. Rogers just began to walk out of the room with the Bible, as though God was leaving their midst, just like his glory departed the temple in the book of Ezekiel. But then, with a flash, he reverts to a different part of that preaching performance. He puts the Bible back down and begins to personate the congregation saying, Lord, don't take your Bible away from us. Don't take your word from us. You can take our homes. You can take our jobs. You can take our livelihoods. He even says, you can take our children, but don't take your word from us. Because without God's word, what do we have in the Christian life? Without God's word, how would we know God's son? Without God's word, how would we receive the life that comes through it, this spiritual power of the new birth through the word? So to help us, here at the end, let's apply this word in a few particular directions. Let me point out a, a few more things about this word-shaped life that is very much a Christ-formed life. Just signaling out three things. Number one, a word-shaped life means patience with your words. Patience with your words. Uh, you, you might know that scholars would tell us the average human being speaks 18,000 words a day. That would work out to be something like 20% of your life, at least, speaking. It's a lot of words, isn't it? But he's exhorting us here to use those words wisely, use those words carefully. Even as Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 12, we will have to give an account for every careless word we've ever spoken. So, word safe life for James. 
is also about our own words. It's patience with our words. But it has to be true also that we can say, secondly, a word-shaped life is about preparation for the word. Preparation for the word. Look, look again at verse 21. We have one command in that text. Now, the ESV that I'm reading from makes it seem as though put away all filthiness is a command. It's an indicative. But in the original, the only command is receive with meekness the implanted word. And surely it makes you think, doesn't it, about the parable of the sower that Jesus gives in the Gospels. This, this preaching of the word, that's a scattering seed on all of these various soils. It's always struck me as a preacher. It seems as though uh, this preacher comes with the word as the parable goes, and it's just like, oh, rocks, great, seed for you. And then, oh, thorns, great, seed for you. And then, oh, good soil, good, seed for you. And he's just scattering it everywhere. And if you know the story, there's only one out of the four soils that receive the word. That's why even in Luke's gospel, he used this word about receiving it with meekness, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I wonder how you prepare to receive God's word. Think about it most acutely, of course, as we gather on this Lord's Day. How did you prepare yesterday to receive God's word? Do you not know that there are things that you can watch on Saturday night? Things that you can see on Saturday, participate in on Saturday, that makes that soul full of very hard soil. To receive God's word. You know, parents, it belongs to you, this great work of Christian parenting, to prepare your children that they might show up on the Lord's day and I'd be able to receive God's word with eagerness, with expectation, with meekness, that they might receive it from its majesty. And of course, finally, what we need to recognize is that a word-shaped life is about persevering in the word. If you look again at verse 25, isn't it what James signals out there? This not just hearing, but doing, that we must persevere in that work that we might be blessed in what belongs to us in the truth. So how are you persevering in your own life, in God's word? Not just on Sundays. Let that be the central place of the word's power in your life. But how about Mondays? How about Thursdays? How are you persevering in what God's truth says? Insofar as we devote ourselves to God's word, receiving it, doing it, obeying it. What we, of course, ultimately are doing is devoting ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. By God's spirit comes to us in this word that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might, with these trials and along with God's truth, might find God chiseling us after the image of his son through the shaping power of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would shape us, that you would fashion us according to the image of your Son, that your word might convict us, that it might comfort us, that it might challenge us, so that we would not just be hearers, but we would also heed its truth. We would not only receive its truth, but respond to it with meekness, with faith, and repentance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.